Hello and welcome to Black, Brown, and Bilingue, where our mission is to unite the black and brown communities through education, storytelling, and community engagement. The vision of Black, Brown, and Bilingue is to be part of creating a world in which Black and Brown identities are affirmed, bilingualism and biculturalism are nurtured, and equity is the driving force behind all that we do. Thank you for joining us again today. I am Lisette Jacobson, and I am one of your hosts. And I'm Maurice McDavid. I'm your other host. Welcome in. <laughs> Welcome in. Listen. That's the type of energy we're bringing today. So if you're not ready for that type of energy, folks, okay, then then this is the wrong podcast for, for real. you. Right. Um, exactly. We're bringing we're bringing fresh earrings. Okay, who you got on the earrings? Who is that? My girl, can you tell who it is? Frida. It's my homegirl Frida. One of my Frida. baby daddies got them for me. Oh, Shout out to my face, baby daddy Frida. Brett. Uh, my baby daddy Brett, my favorite baby daddy which also is my only baby daddy. Do you know somebody asked me that? If, if my kids have the same parent, my, the same dad? Hmm. Hmm. Just because one's a little more. Hashtag microaggression. Yes, hashtag doing too much. But anyway, <laughs> go ahead and introduce the topic for today. Ladies and gentlemen, again, we just want to give you a quick reminder that if you are only listening to us, you are missing part of the experience. Now! We appreciate so much you listening. Remember, uh, you know, be sure to share this episode if you enjoy, but but also just know Black, Brown, and Bilingue now has a YouTube channel, so you can come and watch clips. You can watch whole episodes. You can follow us on Instagram, follow us on Twitter, um, all of the above uh, in order to hear great content like what we have for you today. Um, so right now, right in the realm of education, which is where both... Uh, Lissette and I work uh, soon to be the Dr. Lissette Jacobson. I'm speaking that by faith into the atmosphere, okay? Uh, soon to be Dr. Lissette Jacobson. Um, uh, and doctora, I, doctora, por favor. Gracias. Doctora, lo siento, claro. Um, so uh, we work in the field of education. Uh, we are both working as principals, and um, we have heard this word equity, Mm. grow in its popularity, grow in its roaring impact, uh, both uh, being well-received and people fighting against it um, as we hear this word equity. But today we want to kind of reel this in a little bit and really talk about, okay, is equity just something that we talk about or what does equity look like in action? And uh, I think that's an important piece for us to get to. We're going to focus today right in the realm of education, um, but hopefully you might be able to apply it to some other places if you work in other places. Lisette, why don't you kick it off? Um, by the way, um, if D33 was to give away an award for principal of the year, oh, I think it would have to go to La Doctora because, look, the growth over at Pioneer, her school, they're killing it over there. Talk to us about equity in education. Um, you know what? You just set it up so perfectly because I feel like 
it has become such a buzzword, right? We have now um, incorporated it into school uh, or district strategic plans. We've also, um, I know that there's an equity question on interviews, um, but what does that actually mean day to day and also beyond representation? Not that representation isn't important, right? Very important. Statistically, we know even like how important it is for students of color to have a teacher um, who looks like them at the head of the classroom. But I think what often gets left out is the curriculum piece. And, and that is one of my passions, right? Curriculum and instruction really is something that I care about. Um, and some of the work that we have done in our building, it honestly could not have been done with my incredible team who has challenged me. You know, it's funny because we're literally side by side unpacking the curriculum frameworks that are in front of us so that we can um, make it more equitable. And so I think one of the things that we discovered, you know, when you and I were in our master's programs to become administrators, all we were told was like, oh, the new principal has to be an instructional leader. Um, and I think then I knew a little bit of what that entailed. But now I'm like, wow, this, this is actually transformative. And I would argue that looking at curriculum through an equity lens is really the missing piece. I think we have rightfully so focused a lot on SEL, right, on that social emotional well-being. But I still think the majority of our time and energy should be centered around instruction and uh, making sure that our kids are being presented with rich and rigorous instruction that is relevant to them. So you mentioned the SEL piece, right? And so I want to just address this right away because the SEL argument sometimes is a crutch. Yes, what it is, it's a crutch. And here's what we say. Well, listen, you asking me to get these kids to read and do math. And what I want to know is how can we help these kids, right? That's what they're asking in their mind. How do we reach these kids? Right? That's what they're asking in their mind. And in their mind, if I can help them to feel better. And I, 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 I use the word crutch loosely because I think it's from a place of care. Totally. They see some limping happening. But the truth is, is that if somebody is going to feel better, oftentimes it has to be connected to them doing better. And if you can't read, if you're reading at a second grade level in fifth grade and you right. see that everybody else is caught up and passing you, tell me what's that going to do to your For SEL. Your SEL. I said that. And it should not be Maslow versus Bloom. It should be Maslow and Blooms. It's and. They're not mutually exclusive. And sometimes that, you know, the conversation around SEL derails any sort of um, talk around academics and student achievement. And trust me, do I feel like there are things that are wrong and flawed with the system? Absolutely. God bless you. Thank you. Um, you know, I definitely think that there are things that need to be reformed, but I cannot wait for the system to catch up. 
So in the meantime, what can I do to give my students the best possible shot at, you know, having great outcomes? So equity in action. One of the things that we've learned, right? And a lot of it has been, you know, a trial and error. And I think when I present, it comes off as a very linear process, but it's not. It actually has been through a lot of trial and error. And this is, again, I could not have done it with my staff because I feel like it's like a like a swing. It's like, all right, we're up, mob, but now we're down. And now we're back up and then we're down, right? And so they have been on this ride and this journey with us. And I just have to give them credit. So we realized that our PLCs or PLTs were not operating at maximum capacity. And, you know, we have a math curriculum, which I actually like. I like the rigor of it. Um, Eureka Math. And um, it's still relatively new, especially if you have newer teachers. Um, it's a lot to process and understand why it is written Definitely. in the way that it is. Definitely. And also, we have a newer uh, language arts curriculum. And I think one of the selling points for it was that it did come with a lot of relevant and culturally responsive literature and books that, you know, kids can see themselves in. However, I think the biggest takeaway is that all curricular frameworks are written in a way that assumes that our students are on grade level or that they come in with a um, solid understanding of prerequisite skills or um, the same background knowledge, right? right? Because you could be brown in a rural city or I'm sorry, rural community, or you can be in an urban city. And, you know, as a Mexican person, those experiences are very, very different. Definitely. And so it's a, it requires a different background. So when we were meeting in our PLCs, we really asked ourselves, what is it exactly that this is asking our students to do? Yeah, such an important question, again, uh, because I think it becomes paramount that the, the instructional leader uh, or leadership team, even, right, your principals, your coaches, um, as well as the teachers, really understand that question, right? It's one of the fours four, right, of what do we want them to know? And if, if you don't know what you want them to know, then you probably Stop don't right know there. how to know whether or not they know it. Exactly. You know, so a, whole bunch of, a whole bunch of things here, right, connected to that. You know, um, one of the things that, that I want to quickly jump in, because you've mentioned, right, culturally relevant, culturally responsive, pedagogy, culturally responsive instruction, right, some of these terms that are kind of thrown around, um, and if you wanted to really get into some details, there are some differences between them. But but I want to come to to um, uh, Zaretta Hammonds, uh, who authors the book "Cultural Responsive Teaching in the Brain." One of the one of the easiest takeaways out of this text, right, when we talk about equity and uh, in, in curriculum, equity and in instruction, right, is that the end result of equity is learning. Mm-hmm. The end result is not just, I have a black teacher. I read a book by a black author. It and is not just that I feel good about myself. Right. The end result of equity, the end result of culturally responsive teaching as, as, a, as a theory is academic success. Right. And if we, if we get too far away from that, right, then, then we're going to miss it. In fact, all these people arguing about equity right in schools 
If you were to explain to them what I'm looking for is for your child and the child next to them, whether they are black or Latino or Asian, whether they are rich or poor, whether they have an IEP or not, or a 504, I'm looking for them to have academic success. Exactly. Now, you still may have some people who feel like, okay, but if you got to take resources from my kid, da, 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 right? But I think that sometimes <laughs> equity uh, really um, is placed in this, in this separate frame. Now, in order to do that, there is some anti-racist work that has to be done. There is some reframing and, and shifting of systems that has to be done. But I, I, you mentioned something. You said, I don't have time to wait for the system to change. So what does that look like for you as a principal? And I'll talk a little bit after that about what it has kind of looked like for me. So for me, what I meant by that was um, we really needed to align to some of the standards, right? And see how we can, on a very foundational level, identify what skills our, our students have mastered and which ones they still need that extra support in and creating systems of intervention where um, they're in and out, right? We, for this year, our students, it has been a very fluid process. There are kids that have been able to graduate down to tier two and even that the down to tier one. Um, and so having the teachers understand that um, it is not a life sentence to be in an intervention and it is something to be celebrated, right? That's equity. Like, um, changing teachers' minds about what our students can and cannot do. Pobrecito. A major hurdle. That was a major hurdle. And I think you said something earlier about like, yeah, if we want our kids to reach this goal, we may have to adjust something as adults, as a teacher, as a professional, we're going to have to change certain things, right? And so changing teachers' minds, because there were times where I was faced, and, and, and I don't think that it was, malicious, but there were still people saying like, yeah, but it's too hard for our kids or the level of Spanish that is being asked of them in this grade level is so advanced. Or maybe even teachers maybe don't have the level of Spanish and that's okay. But taking the time to really sit down and understand what materials are in front of them and how they pace out has helped us I'll give you a more concrete example. So our program requires our students to do a lot of writing. And writing is a different skill set in and of itself. A lot of the um, skill mastery of reading standards is through writing. And I would argue that that just takes a different level of cognitive ability. And so once we understood that week one of a nine-week unit, our kids were being asked to write, we realize, like, wait, but this makes the assumption that our kids come in with all of this background knowledge. So what we ended up doing is we looked at all of the standards and said, okay, we're not going to remove them. We're not going to make things easier or go down a grade level, because I think that was a big conversation, too, with the pandemic, is that we were going to have to go backwards and, and try to teach some of the standards. Right. And it's like, well, no, we don't have time for that. So time for it. We don't have time for it. So what we ended up doing is just changing the order of the standards so that we had the ability to front load. So we had the ability to build vocabulary so that we could do some experiential things so that once students were 
getting into that writing piece, they actually have something to write about. And so to me, that is the leveling of the playing field, right? Am I going to have any control over your SES or um, what your home life is like? No, I can support you in that. And if you need outside resources, more than happy to help you. But what I can control and what I can change is how I present information to you. How do I make it comprehensible for you, regardless if you're an EL or a student with an IEP and increase your odds of succeeding? I mean, it really does not get any better than that, like, or simpler than that. It's what do we want our students to know? How are we going to know that they know it? What are we going to do about it if they don't know it? And what are we going to know about it if they do know it? And as long as you stay in that cycle and you analyze curriculum frameworks through that equity lens, golden. Yeah. Um, so so I think one of the pieces, Lissette, that I've really done some reflection on, in fact, I'm I'm reading an article right now. It's actually a collection of of, uh, research articles uh, that was put out, I want to say maybe by Scholastic, somebody, and and I'll, I'll, you know, get the resource and share that resource eventually here. Um, But they're talking a lot about assessment. And um, you and I have had some conversations about assessment. And that's one of the things that I've thought a lot about in terms of not waiting for the system, right? So mm-hmm. uh, we were leaving out of class one night and you talked about the idea that this assessment is what we have. Um, what really helped to change my mind on assessments um, was getting a chance to hear from uh, a woman who now works for Northwestern University, um, but had previously worked for NWEA. And she talked about, first off, knowing what the purpose of your assessment is, right? Um, so that idea that that the map or, or the um, measure of academic progress, right, is really an assessment that's, that's going to give you information about what your student is ready for next, Yes. And I think for a long time, people looked at it as like a mastery assessment, right? Like, well, they didn't do well on maps. So, you know, that's how you know that they're way behind. No, it's telling you, here's what they're ready for next. Grab hold of that information. Use that information uh, to, to build your next steps, right? Whereas IAR, which which our kids are going to come back and take when we get back from spring break, they're going to come in. They're going to take this mastery assessment. But even that is going to give us some good information in that it can tell the fourth grade teacher, here's the third grade standards that the kids did master. And here's some things that they definitely still struggled with. Right. So it can give you a whole universal perspective. Um, I bring all of that right into the conversation because if, if we're going to talk about um, equity, right. And we're going to talk about the, the gaps that exist 110%, we can say that there are still, even though there's been intentional efforts to root out bias on assessments. Right. It's still there. It's less than what it was, but also it's showing up in multiple ways, right? So, So if IAR was the only thing that told me that we are struggling readers, that'd be one thing. But struggling reading is showing up in multiple other pieces, right? So allowing that data to still give us that story and more important than just the story of of they are struggling readers is what specifically do we do about it? 
We yeah. cannot allow us to make up a story about their home lives, and that's yeah. why they can't read. We can't allow ourselves to make up a story uh, about this family's lack of value for education. Mm-hmm. Hashtag racist, by the way. Right, right. I, I just want to be clear that when you've decided in your mind that this family does not value education because mm-hmm. things aren't matching up with the way you'd like them to be, is very colonial, right? It's it's it's, it's colonizing. Um, uh, but 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 if we can get to a place where we can take the assessments for what they are, the good, the bad, the ugly. Let me give you a quick example, and then I want to I want you to kind of uh, I'd love to hear kind of your thoughts on this because I know you came in already strong on on this already, you know, um, in our previous conversation. But I will say, my son came home and was talking about their new math curriculum, and was like. Man, dad, they got us in here learning things that we're not even going to need in real life. Now, where did he hear that from? A teacher. You know good and well that a teacher is the one who said, made that statement, and the kids ate it up. So even the way that we as staff talk about these assessments will have a drastic impact on the way our kids feel about the assessment. Mm -hmm. And the effort they're willing to give on it. Totally. Totally. Um, I think, you know, I liken this whole assessment. Let's say, let's just, let's go, let's say you're feeling sluggish, lethargic. It's hard for you to get out of bed. It's happening so much that you feel like you need to go to the doctor. What are some of the things that the doctor is going to do, Maurice? Going to run some tests. We're going to run Check some my test. weight gonna check my weight maybe check my blood sugar maybe uh my blood pressure your um, cholesterol your triglycerides right take some blood do a blood draw maybe ask are you feeling anxious or depressed or how are you right. doing stress management what kind of lifestyle uh, a, a we variety could, we could be doctors by the way we could be yeah. medical doctors we just right. basically did there and that's that'll be 120 dollars, please so and and when we get the doctor in front of our names, I'm just going to tell people, yeah, I'm a doctor, doctor. I'm a medical. (laughs) (laughs) Or at least I play one on TV. Right. So you are going to get a battery of assessments done. And the end goal is to what? It's to be able to diagnose what the problem is and then endeavor to fix it. However, conspiracy theorists would argue that it's not, it's to medicate you. No, and I'm going to comment on that later, but but go ahead. because okay, I, I that's, talk a, whole about that that's too. a whole different episode. But so, yes, you run a battery of assessments to really identify right. what the issue is. And it may be that you have, um, you're, you're a little overweight, you have a high stress job, and you're not eating healthy. Well, right? Hold on. Did you go to my doctor's visit? <laughs> so, <laughs> right. Hey, the same could be said for me. So again, it's to really zero in and drill down on what it is that you need to get better. Yeah. I cannot necessarily pretend I'm the doctor. I cannot necessarily as your doctor control anything that's your home life, your stress, your anything, right? Does a doctor sit there and tell you 
about yourself and makes all these assumptions and says, you're just lazy. Your family doesn't care about you because you're overweight and they're feeding you all this nonsense. Exactly. Not a good doctor. Right. Not Not an effective doctor. So not only does that really paint the picture of what we use assessments for, but also how egregious it is to make these assumptions about students in their home lives. So that's really kind of the example that I always go back to is that we're really just trying to drill down on what is it that our students need and how, what kind of plan or intervention can we put in place so that we can increase their chances of succeeding. And then your doctor will say, come back in three to six months and we'll check to see how you're doing. For us, we don't have that kind of time. We'll say six to eight weeks. We'll reassess where they're at and we'll run the same assessments, right? We're not going to check your um, red blood cell count. Although that could also be why you're sluggish, but we're not going to do a whole different test. We're going to go back and check. Did your um, insulin markers go up or down? All of that good stuff. You know, now I'm getting too detailed, but you get, you get the point where that's all it is. And unfortunately we have used assessments for punitive purposes. I think that's the part that I have to try and move my teachers away from. Um, and even taking an equity approach towards them and their understanding of data. If we think yeah. about our staff members, we can put them in a NTSS or RTI triangle in terms of capacity. And instead of saying, oh, well, this teacher doesn't know this or they're not doing that. Hey, maybe they need a little push. Maybe they need a accountability partner or something. We also have to be equitable in the support that we provide our teachers and not make the assumption that because we make them sit down for a day or two on professional development, that they're going to know everything related to assessments. That's just not realistic. So, Lissette, I want to I want to kind of get around the corner here okay? because when we I love what we're talking about in terms of equity. But I, I think you'd agree with me when when I say it's not always what is perceived when we use the word equity. So I do wonder how you, you not, and I. It's not that little picture with the, with the boxes and then the fence. And now all of a sudden we don't want the fence in the picture. <laughs> Have you ever thought about if there's no fence there and that ball gets smashed yes, in the outfield. Just getting... That fence is there for your protection, bro. <laughs> it's because you're not you don't have a glove well if, if it's real equity i guess we could take the fence down but then we got to give you a glove so you can catch the ball when it comes in your direction but right. um but obviously there's all types of answers right out there as to what equity is um there's some fear-mongering that's happening around equity i, I do wonder you and i as both um practitioners in the field of education, but also as as public figures. Um, And I'm going to use that term because we host a a podcast that we put out for the public consumption. Um, How do we we get this great conversation, right? Apart from having recorded it here on this podcast, how how do we get this message of equity out to other places? What are some things that maybe you've seen uh, happen and or uh, that have been done well um, kind of in, in, in your experience? 
You know, I really have started to hear a lot more about um, organizations that are not education, like the corporate world, who are beginning to engage um, in some of these conversations, particularly, you know, in HR departments, right? When we're talking about recruiting, retention. Um, I have some friends of mine who I went to school with who are in the corporate world and work, you know, as HR um, representatives. And they have talked a lot about how they have seen a shift in some of the conversations going on at the workplace. And um, it almost feels like they're a little behind, like, like maybe six to 10 years behind the eight ball. Um, and so, you know, they've been seeing the conversations, especially when it comes to hiring and they're bringing in um, facilitators to help move them forward. Um, she, ha- look, I'm thinking of a particular friend and she has mentioned about, you know, how some of the cons- uh, affirmative action conversations have uh, taken place. And it's interesting because I always love to share this little fact that, White women are the biggest beneficiaries of affirmative action. Um, So those are the places that I'm seeing it crop up. And I also think a lot of it has to do because the media, good or bad, has started to talk about it more openly. And I think that it has seeped through everything. It has always been there, but now it's creating a, you know, an environment where people are talking about this. It matters to them. We're able to identify it. I think about when I was uh, in Dr. Cohen's class and there were a lot of things that he said that I knew because I had experienced them, but I couldn't identify them and talk and like name it like I can now, right? I can name a microaggression. I can name, you know, white fragility or white tears or white privilege. I can, you know, talk about misogyny. I I didn't have the terminology for it, but I think because it's on everyone's mind now that we're seeing it just talked about more openly. Yeah, which again, I I think, you know, I I guess I think a, a lot about, how um how again we we make this palatable to folk um and and i i hate that expression right because i don't but that's want where to... you and i differ this is i think where you and i have had the mo- some of the most heated discussions well right and i know exactly where you're going with that right because that that feels almost like you know Look at me getting real close here. (laughs) I'll I'll, I'll give you this quick example. My wife was talking to a local politician. And there was some concern about some of her policy by a person who has a good relationship with me. And my wife says, well, my husband and him seem to get along. And the man's response was, well, yeah, everybody loves Maurice. He has the ability to take something and say it in a way that it can be well-received. Um, even if he's saying something that maybe is, is um, difficult. And my wife's answer was, yeah, but he ain't no punk either. Right? So, Cause my wife had heard, my wife heard the same thing that I think sometimes you hear, right? Which is, mm. okay, I don't, I don't want to make it. I don't want, I'm not trying to sugarcoat nothing. Right. Um, and, and so her response was, right, because she knows who I am. She knows where I've been in the community and what I've said and what I've stood up 
for and who I've set up to. And she said, but he ain't no punk either. And I appreciated that because I do sometimes worry, right? I don't, when I, when I say, I, I, wait, how pause. Do we make she didn't go up to him and smack him. I'm just she kidding. Did not. <laughs> <laughs> tell y'all when we're recording this episode, folks, either you oh, get it or you don't. <laughs> um, so, so, but I, I do think about, I do think of myself as a bridge and I'm probably more of a Martin than a Malcolm. Yeah. But, and you and I both know this, people think Martin was a punk. Martin Luther King Jr. was not no punk. I need y'all to get that through your head, bro. But that's because he's no been quote unquote whitewashed, right? right. That, you know, we've had an episode about like alignment and me saying yes and no to things that no longer aligned to how I feel. I have come to the conclusion that that is not my lane. My lane is not MLK. If anything, and I'm completely comfortable with it, I am going to have the difficult conversation. And then someone like you, Maurice, can come in and clean it up and say, well, what she meant to say and this is how we bridge that. Hey, but that is okay. You need that. Right. I think even when we were, you know, just to bring it back to this whole curriculum conversation, there were times where even when I was working with some of my staff members, we didn't always agree, but I knew at some point I needed to be the one to say, okay, this is what we're going to do. And I had to use key players to make it happen. And if my role was to shake things up, then that's my role. And I am okay with that because I am fearless in that sense. Now it doesn't mean, cause you know, I will boohoo quick. Like I am very sensitive. I think everything, all of my emotions and all the things that I feel are just, I'm just a feelings person. So it does not mean the absence of empathy, love, if anything, because I love so deeply and feel so strongly I communicate in the way that I do. And I'm no longer going to allow people to discredit me for showing very human emotions, palatable or not. And so I'm okay with that. I, I, that is literally my lane. And guess what? Look at me. I'm smiling. If you, you're not watching the video, I feel good knowing that this is who I am. I'm okay with it. Hey, I'm okay with it too. I, I do think, I do think you've, you've hit on something, right? And you, you referenced it. I do think that's why it's so important as a leader to build a team. And I think whatever BBB becomes as we continue to grow and expand, I think it will be so key for us to have this dynamic. Um, but, but I'll just say in parentheses, right, this is my also I ain't no punk. Please do not try me. <laughs> but, hey, look, because look, I've been Will Smith my whole life. You feel me? No, I didn't have to, don't to, say that. to sell records. Okay. Don't. Everybody know he got some pent up anger. You don't have any pent up anger. I don't. I don't. That's true. But but I do. But I I I am I am willing to speak truth to power. Um. But I think you are much more aware of how that comes across and, and not, I'm not saying that that's a bad thing because to a certain extent right like you need 
that ability to influence others to follow your lead. Yeah. But I have also been told by people who I think have been the hardest to reach. Like, I think why it works for me is because number one, it's just authentic and genuine. And people know that my staff knows that they know that like when I'm like this, it's me being real. And some of my hardest to reach staff members, not even in my current role, but just in general, I have been able to move them because of my willingness to just communicate so openly and honestly. Yeah. Right. Where when I try to be a little bit more, uh, what's the word? Palatable. I keep coming back to that. I felt like, oh, I was engaging in those easy conversations and I found myself preaching to the choir and still avoid avoiding some of those staff members where I'm like I'm walking past their classroom and I should really go in, but now nah, I'm gonna keep it moving. Right. Because I was uncomfortable. And now I I'm walking in that door. I am going to have those conversations. Yeah. And it works for me. And I, I think equally right. But flip it. If I was to come in and say some things, I think in the way that, that you are able to communicate folk would be like, Folk would feel like what you say Ooh, in yeah. reality, folk would feel like if I said it that way, like I had just yelled at them because it would be, you know what I'm saying? Like you can say it because, because this is Lissette and this is how she operates. If I was to come in and do it that same way, people would be like, did he just yell at me? And I wouldn't have raised my voice at all, but it yeah. would feel like I had yelled at them. So I think. Oh, you know where I thought you were going to go with that? I thought you were going to say people were going to find you as a scary black man. Well, there is that too. Um, I've never, I don't think I've ever really had to deal with, with that. Um, except not even, not even like as a first impression. Maybe. Maybe. But without hearing you speak, I, but you're very disarming right away. <laughs> like, I know. Moment, I know. The moment you say hello, <laughs> it's like, oh, we, we like him. He's nice. Right. <laughs> what I will say is, is both Malcolm and Martin got assassinated. Can we not say that before? Can you not say that? I I only say that because I'm willing to make, I'm willing to invest that much though, right? I'm willing to make that much change. Can we not? I don't want to hear that, that you're. Okay. I got you. I just, I'm I'm just putting it out there. See, that actually makes me sad as annoying as you can be to me at times. (laughs) That would make me really sad. Um, So so again, though, with equity, Maurice, I think there is room for both of us yep. for very different settings, maybe, maybe simultaneous. Right. And I think, again, that is why we work and why we work so well together. Right. All right, Maurice, here at BBB, you know how we do. We always wrap it up with a final thought. What do you want the listeners to walk away with? What I want the listeners to walk away with today is just a reminder that equity work is work that benefits everybody, that a more equitable school system, more equitable society, more equitable workforce uh, is something that is better for us as a country, period. Perfect. And I'm going to switch it up a little bit here. You can feel the the tune. (laughs) Don't just talk about it. Be about it. Or better known as, don't just talk the talk, but walk the walk. 
That is all. Whether you're on the north side, the east side, the west side, walk it out. Uh-uh. Okay. Walk it like I talk it, right? Walk it like I talk it. All right. For Black, Brown, and Bilingue, I am one of your hosts, Lisa Jacobson. I'm your other host, Maurice McDavid. Muchas gracias for tuning in. Adios. Thank <laughs> you.